0: to New Life Midtown, and I would love for you to join me in standing up. Those online, we are so grateful that you are able to join us this morning. We're here to worship the King of Kings.
1: say hallelujah. hallelujah, man, I've tasted and I've seen that the Lord is good, the Lord is good. Friends, I know the sun is not exactly shining and the birds are chirping, which the sun might be out and there's a lots of snow, but there's a reason for you to be here in the house this morning, it's because God is with us. We are here to encounter the living presence of God, even in some funny October snow time that we have here. All right. So, if you're new here to New Life Midtown, we're a house that believes in encountering God, a house that believes that we can be formed by the presence and the power of God, and a house that also believes that we're sent out in God's great mission. And I was praying and thinking about this service, about this congregation here this morning, and I had a few thoughts. One of my thoughts that I didn't share in the first service, I want to share in the second service, is when Jesus after he was resurrected from the cross and before he ascended, he approached his disciples and the scripture says that he breathed on them and he said, receive you the Holy Spirit. And I just had a sense that there are some here today that need the breath, the life, the wind of the spirit to really pick them up today. You know, Jesus is about resurrection life. He's not about reanimating your dead life. He's about transforming you into something completely new. And I just felt like we need to hear that as a church congregation today. If you're dry and you need the life of God, my encouragement is come to Jesus. Let the life of God be breathed into you. It's almost like he's resuscitating you, not back to life, but into a new life, a living hope. So before we continue to sing, before we sing our songs and pray our prayers and hear the word and take the sacraments, can we just take a posture right now to receive the spirit of God from God? Come on, open up your hands just like this and just repeat after me, say, you are welcome here, Holy Spirit. Breathe upon my life. Yes, Lord, we receive you. We receive your spirit. are making dead people come to life all over this building and for those that are joining online you are breathing the life of God into their souls right now so we take the time to embrace that friends let us read Psalms 51 together as our call into worship let's read create in me a pure heart O God and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Say that again. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Father God, here we are, we pray. Father, Son, and Spirit, We ask that you sustain us with a willing spirit, that the joy of the Lord would become our strength. Even in weakness, we can find joy. And that is the place where we find joy because your joy gives us strength. Your joy gives us hope in life. So Holy Spirit, Creator Spirit, be the breath that we need right now. And we ask that you speak to our hearts throughout the rest of the service in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And all God's people say amen.
0: It's is hard.
1: Place where God encounters us. Thank you, Lord, breathe upon us. This is the ever breathe. This is the living in me yes alive in me this is my daily bread this is my daily bread your very word oh it's smoking so holy and worthy, match in all your ways, so here we come to sing a song of that, yes Lord, a thousand generations
0: falling
1: down in worship to sing the song of ages to the land. the land Cause your name is the highest
2: to the worthiness of Jesus today, beloved. Jesus, we can be here today singing these kind of songs to you because you are worthy. And I would ask, Holy Spirit, that you would give us a renewed revelation of the worth of Jesus. You are worth all of this. You are worth all of this. You're worth it all, Jesus. You are worthy. You are worthy, Jesus. You can allow that to just bubble up from within your spirit. You can allow that to come out of your mouth. You are worthy. You are worthy. You are worthy. You are worthy. Worthy is the Lamb. Worthy is this Lamb of God who was slain. Revelation 5, John the Beloved. Scripture tells us, I wept and I wept because I couldn't find anyone who was worthy to open the scroll. And then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. For look, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, he has triumphed. And then the scripture says, I looked and I beheld a lamb, looking as if he had been slain. Standing in the center of the throne and around him were elders and angels. And oh, Jesus, today, transfix our eyes on the worth of the only one who's worthy. You're worth our devotion, you're worth our allegiance, you're worth our affection. You're worth our treasures. You're worth our fears. You're worth our anxieties. You're worth our trust, God. We lay it like crowns at your feet. We lay it all right now before you. My talents, my gifts, my history, my future, I lay it at the feet of the worthy one. Lord, I'm asking for a revelation of the beauty and the worth of Jesus today. This only comes by condescension. It only comes by revelation. But I want to know it, and I want this for my friends. We want to know the beauty and the worth of Jesus. Come, spirit of revelation, open our eyes. You are worthy. We worship you because you're worthy. You are worthy because you being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to grasp for. Jesus, you lowered yourself and you took the very nature of a servant. You took the very nature of a servant. You became obedient even unto the point of death. And for this reason, at your name, every knee will bow. and every tongue will confess. So Jesus, we bow our knee and we confess with our lips, you are Lord, there is none like you. Friend Seth in the opening scripture read something that just gripped me and I wanna invite you into this space. Out of Psalm 51, the psalmist said, create in me a clean heart. Would you just pray that prayer with me today? Holy God, would you do what we can't do? We cannot create clean hearts. Would you create in us, O uncreated one? O creator God, create in us a clean heart. By the work of redemption, by the work of the blood of Jesus, by the work of the spirit living and dwelling inside of us, Lord, we rest in the creating God, creating in us a clean heart. Make our hearts new in your presence. Make our affections and our longings. Make our proclivities new. Give us new inclinations, God. Give us clean proclivities. Give us clean propensities. Come straighten out the bend within our hearts and create clean hearts in us, God. Give us clean hands and pure hearts, God we receive. All right, beloved, I want you to turn now. I want you to do something that we don't typically do in a church service like this, but I want to see us do more of it. I want you to take a slow 360 and just look at who is gathered here with you today. I want you to look at people you know and people you don't know. I love this man right here. I have no idea who he is, but he did exactly what I asked him to do. And I appreciate you. A slow 360. And maybe let the Holy Spirit allow your eyes to land on someone. Maybe you know them, maybe you don't. Maybe let your eyes uh, just kind of pause for a moment. Maybe you know the stories of some people in this room. And here's what I'm gonna ask. This is gonna be a moment of intercession, but this is family intercession. Every one of us this morning are carrying something that we need desperately, God, to do in our lives. Broken friendships that need to be mended and repaired. Hope that needs to be restored. Anxiety that we're carrying into the presence of the Lord. Some of you desperately need the provision of God. Whatever it is that you are carrying today in this space, I want you to turn. I want you to stretch your hands on someone. And I want you to pray for them what you need for you. I want you to sow into their life right now. So all around this room, just let your gaze fall on someone. Stretch forth your hands towards them. And just pray for a moment. Lord, I pray healing. Healing over hearts that have been wounded and betrayed and violated. Lord, I pray that the faith of my brother and my sister today would not fail. I pray that your faith would not fail, that God would renew and strengthen you in your faith today. I pray that God would pour his loving affection out on you, my sister. I pray that God would set this lonely one in a family, that God would surround you with comfort and strength. I pray that those in this room that need desperately to know that they've been forgiven the revelation of the forgiving one would come. Pray health in your bones and health in your mind. I pray that fear would leave you. I pray strength and grace on you, my brothers and my sisters today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen, thanks for going there with me and just settle in because I think we're gonna do a lot more of that a lot more often. All right, friends, you can have a seat this morning. I want to encourage you in your worship of giving by way of very simple reminder. In an age where uh, the expediency of our giving, the convenience of our giving is a blessing. It is a blessing. If it's a blessing for us on an accounting side, it's a blessing for me. As someone who gives regularly to the Lord. But there is also this small little moment, if I'm not careful, where I can just set it and I can forget it. And I can forget that something is being automatically withdrawn and that that what is being automatically withdrawn is actually something very holy. My giving to the Lord is holy. And it's holy because he makes it holy. He touches it, he asks me for it. And he makes it what it is not in and of itself, he makes it holy. And so what I just want to very simply do in this moment right here, whether you give physically with cash or check, whether you give online or whether you don't give at all, I want to stop and I want to say, Lord, this moment right here is a moment where we can invite you to come and breathe on the worship of our giving, the worship of our offering, and make it holy, God. Consecrate it. Do holy things with our offering. First and foremost, be, be worshipped by the faithfulness of our giving today. Be adored. Be recognized as Lord. Lord, I give to you because you are, the, you are the king of my life, and it's a joy. Secondly, oh God, I would ask that you would take the breadcrumbs of our giving and that you would make bread out of it and feed the world. Oh God, that you would do holy work with our small gifts. And thirdly, I would ask for every single one of us, Lord, that you would return unto us, that you would multiply, that you would give us each this day our daily bread. One of the ways we do this around here is we have a crafted prayer that we have put together, and we invite you to pray this with us. Again, whether you give or whether you do not give. We invite you into this space of asking God to consecrate our giving with this prayer. You can pray together with me. Father, you are the abundant giver of all good things. So train us to delight in holy dependence. Lead us to honor you with all of our resources and free us from the deceitfulness of greed and earthly riches. Teach us to give generously, with open hands and joy-filled hearts that we might receive abundantly and flourish for the sake of others and your purposes in the earth. We agree. Amen. Moms and dads, pull your kids in tight. Kindergarten through fifth grade, as the pastor of this house, I want you to know we love you. And you are a treasure. Zeke, you're a treasure to us. Peyton, you're a treasure to us. We love you. The future of the faith is resting on you. Carry that in grace. And so we want to bless you today as we send you upstairs. We want to bless you as we pray the prayer of the Lord together. Friends, would you join me? Heartfelt, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who have sinned against us and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Amen. Sons and daughters of the house, we bless you. We release you. We love you. Will you give our kids a hand today? Let them know they're celebrated. If you're joining us today here at Midtown on this snowy day for the very first time, man, a very warm welcome. You are welcome in this house. You're welcome in this family. And we pray that you discover the goodness of God today in a very rich and a very meaningful way. With that being said, I'd like to invite you to stand and just greet someone in the peace of the Lord and enjoy each other's company before we come together for the word.
3: Good morning new life midtown it is great to see you this morning man it would not be october in colorado without us getting some snow before the end i don't know what that's about but at least it's consistent amen i just have a few announcements for you today but first a message from seth putnam
1: if you enjoy the worship every Sunday morning and you're curious about how to join the worship team or even the production team, then we would love to chat with you. After service, we'll meet in the cafe. There'll be someone there to answer your questions and you can sign up to audition for the worship team or be a part of the production team.
3: Something else we got going on is the Legacy Gathering. The holiday gathering, it's happening next weekend and tomorrow is the last day to sign up for that. So if you have not yet registered for that event, Please do so. You can go on the website midtown.newlifechurch.org or visit us at the Welcome Center and we'd be happy to get you signed up. And lastly, this month on November 12th, we have New Life Next. So maybe this is your first week or maybe you've been attending for a few months and you want to learn the next steps to get plugged in here at New Life Midtown. I encourage you, come to this lunch. You can come to the Welcome Center to get signed up. We would love to see you there. And that's all we have for the announcement. So I pray that you enjoy this awesome word that we're about to get from Dr. Chris Green.
4: Good morning, everyone. How many of you were able to join us yesterday at the seminar on trauma, healing, and the life of faith? Fantastic. Man, about half of the room. Wonderful. Uh, I've been asked so many times, is that recorded? And if so, how do I get it? There's no way we're going to try and remember everyone and send individual emails. So here's what we've decided. We're going to send it to the whole church. One of the next two Thursdays, the the weekly e-blast goes out or the newsletter goes out. It will be included in there so that all of you can watch it, whether you were or were not there. But it was an incredible time. I would urge you guys to pay attention to that. Uh, I have the privilege of welcoming Dr. Green to the stage Bishop Right Reverend Dr. Chris Green, as I affectionately call him every time I text him. It's wonderful. Uh, For those of you who know him, you know the spirit of what is about to come forth. But for those of you who do not, Dr. Green is a professor of theology. He's a bishop over a diocese and most recently a church planner. And if I do recall, the first time that we had you at Antioch Church, you said, and I quote, I will never do that again. Look at God. Okay? Amen. Amen. Uh, What I love about Dr. Green is that he could come up here and wow us with his brilliance. But here's what you need to know, that I think what moves him is what moved the Apostle Paul to say that he desires that Christ be formed in each and every one of us. So if we can, let's give him a Midtown welcome as he comes to bring the word. Dr. Chris Green, welcome. Thank you.
5: Good morning. It's good to be here. Really, I'm glad to be here. I'm glad to be here when it's so cold. I do not like warm weather. Too much sunshine leaves me depressed. So winter storms, I feel right at home. It's true. If I'm going to do something entirely different in the service from what I did in the first. So if you don't like this, I guess you can sit through it. It'll do you some good discipline-wise. Catch the first service. Maybe there was something in that. But I'm, I want to, I, I don't exactly know how all of this plays out, but it's, I want to leave you with a triptych, a kind of set of three images side by side. And I want to, we're going to look at the stories of three saints in their dying moments, what they said and did, what they didn't say and didn't do, and like, let the impression be what those three images together say. So we're going to look at St. Paul and his last words. We're going to look at St. David and his last words and Moses, St. Moses, and his last words. And for the most of the sermon, if you can call it a sermon, it's less of a sermon and more of a jumble of words in awe of what Jesus did for these three men. But at the end of it, I hope the impression is exactly what Pastor Jade prayed for, a revelation of Jesus in the lives of these three men. I I want to say this. Those of us who've been raised in Protestant, free church traditions, low church traditions, we've kind of lost sight of the fact that Jesus does not want to be known in isolation from his family and his friends. And we've kind of, out of fear of the Catholics, we've separated Jesus from the saints. The problem is Jesus does not want to be known in that way. This is not a part of the sermon. But in in Matthew's gospel, there's this striking line in chapter 2, when the Magi come looking for Jesus, the text says, Matthew points out, that they see, when they finally come to the stable where Jesus is, right, they see the child with his mother. And over and over in the chapter, Matthew tells the story so that Jesus is always seen with his mother. When the angel appears to Joseph and tells him to flee into Egypt, the angel says, take the child and his mother and flee into Egypt. When the angel appears to him in Egypt and says, Herod has died, return home, he says, take the child and his mother. And then Matthew, when he's narrating the story, each time he refers to Jesus, he refers to Jesus and his mother, the child and his mother. And then in the midst of all that, Herod, of course, hears through the Magi, that the the son of David has been born, that the true king of Israel has been born. And what does Herod do? Do you remember? He seeks the child. Herod is only interested in what Jesus represents. He's interested in the child as possible threat to his throne. He doesn't see Jesus as someone who belongs in a family, who is known with other people. Jesus is an idea to him. And tragically, many of us have been formed in a spirituality in which we've tried to have Jesus without his friends and without his family. And he doesn't want to be known that way. The reason you're here is that he doesn't want to be known without you. Crazy as that may be, he doesn't want to be known without you. And when people try to get around you to get to Jesus, he just keeps redirecting them to you. And sometimes, even to me, it's he. This is just who he is. You remember the line in Hebrews He is not ashamed to be called our brother, Amen. he doesn't want to be known apart from us. So, one of the things that happens when we isolate Jesus from his friends is that we then start to compare our lives to Jesus' life as we imagine it must have been, and we think. Well, I can't do that. He was Jesus and I'm not. I mean, of course he overcame temptation. He's God. Of course he slept through the storm. He's God. Of course he died with blessing in his mouth. He's God. And we fail to see the ways in which Jesus has made that same kind of faithfulness possible for his friends. And we're not simply called to imitate Jesus and forget everyone else. We're called to imitate the saints by participating in Jesus. What does Paul tell his churches? Imitate me as I imitate Christ. Follow me as I follow Christ. And what's made possible in all of our lives is the work of God in us then becomes reflected through us to the people around us in such a way that they can see God in the way they need to see him. God doesn't want to be known apart from us. That's why there's a church. That's why his body has been given to the world. If he he had wanted something else, there would not have been an ascension. There would not have been a Pentecost. The resurrection would have been the end of everything. We wouldn't be here today. We'd be in the age to come. We're here today because Jesus, after he had conquered death, after he had accomplished all of his father's will, after he had said, it is finished, he ascended and poured his spirit out upon us so that he will be known in people's knowing of us. That should stagger you. That should awe you. It also should move you to gratitude. This is, who, this is the humility of our God. He doesn't want to be known apart from us. So we're going to look at these three saints today, Moses, David, and Paul. And the, the central image is the image of Paul. So let's look at 2 Timothy chapter 4. I'm fragile enough, my ego is fragile enough. I'm going to need you occasionally to make some noise so that I know that you're here. Okay? 2 Timothy 4. Even if you jeer or or, or throw curses at me, at least I'll know you're there. 2 Timothy 4. This is Paul's last letter. It's written from a prison in Rome. So the image I want you to see is an old man in chains with guards around him, scribbling out his last public words. He knows these are going to be public words, at least some of them are, and these are his last words. So with the chains on his arms and with guards standing in the light, he's scribbling out these last words. Or he's telling someone to do it. We don't know quite. Picture it either way. He's giving Timothy, who's his son in the faith, last instructions. We're not going to do a lot of the backstory, but Timothy is one of, if not Paul's, closest companions. He's a much younger, a son in the faith, a much younger companion that Paul trusts absolutely. Timothy seems to have had a kind of constant ailment. The drink a little wine for your stomach's sake, that's the reason that text is there. Lots of holiness teenagers were grateful for that line. Someday we'll talk about all of the favorite passages of Scripture for teenagers raised in holiness churches, like Song of Songs, that passage. But again, the Whore of Babylon. Again, we're not going to do it today, though, but have me back someday, and I'll talk about that. So Paul has entrusted Timothy over and over and over again with, with serious responsibility. He's done it again. With this church in Ephesus, and Paul knows that that Timothy not only has this kind of constant ailment, but Timothy also has a kind of timidity. It seems a a kind of if not quite intimidated, he's not entirely sure of himself, which is almost always a good sign, by the way, because it's it's much easier to bring someone from a place of timidity into confidence than from a place of arrogance back to confidence. So that's a much easier transition, right? But Timothy is is being bolstered, and he's being bolstered publicly. Paul wants people to hear what he has to say about Timothy. Timothy, I know this faith is in you because it was in your mother and it was in your grandmother. I saw it in them, and now I see it in you. And, Timothy, I know there are gifts in you and a calling on your life because we laid hands on you, and the Spirit spoke prophetic words over you. So again, he's trying to give Timothy this confidence. Let no one despise your youth. Then, he says a few final words about himself and his own readiness for death. So see this old man in chains saying this about himself. 2 Timothy chapter 4. For I am already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time for my departure is near. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now, there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. And if we stopped at that point, these would be, this would be a perfectly fitting end to a public statement. There's rhetorical skill at play here. There's a polish to what Paul is saying it's poetic. There's a reason that many of us, those of us who were raised in churches from our youth, know this in the King James. And it's it's even part of our, our public language. I've fought a good fight. I've kept the faith. Like that language is kind of in the air for us, in part because of the, the consummate skill with which Paul s- speaks it, right? There's a, there's a kind of accomplishment in how well he says these last words. But what's remarkable about this dying man, is that he's not satisfied with that kind of perfectly rhetorical finish. He keeps talking. He keeps writing. He wants Timothy, he needs Timothy, to see the human behind that rhetorical flourish. It's not that Paul can't do this. It's not that Paul is unwilling to speak in those ways. It's that there's another way of speaking, heart to heart, to Timothy that must come through. Now, it's not clear whether Paul intended this from the beginning or it just happens as he writes it. And the way that I imagine it is that Paul had thought he would end with those final words about his readiness to die. And that as a writer, Paul, I'm sure, felt some pride in, oh, that's good, I I did well. But he knew instinctively as he was writing those lines, this can't be the end. I have to say more because this is too polished. It's too fine. And it leaves the wrong impression because it's not telling the truth of how I feel about this moment. So Paul is ready to die. And yet, in the midst of that readiness, in the midst of his confidence in God, there are other thoughts and feelings at work. And so he goes on, do your best to come to me quickly. Do your best to come to me quickly. For Demas, because he loved this world, has deserted me and has gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you because he is helpful to me in my ministry. I sent Tychicus to Ephesus, probably with this letter. When you come, bring the cloak that I left left with Carpus at Troas and my scrolls especially the parchments. Alexander the metalworker, which is a great name, by the way. I mean, that seems to have been a terrible person, but <laughs> Alexander the metal worker did me a great deal of harm. The Lord will repay him for what he has done. You too should be on your guard against him because he strongly opposed our message. At my first defense, no one came to my support but everyone deserted me. It's the second time Paul has said this. Demas has forsaken me. At my defense, at my trial, no one showed up for me. Everyone deserted me. But the Lord stood at my side and gave me strength so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. And I was delivered from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil attack. And will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Now what has happened here? This, I think, is the gleam of real holiness. That Paul, having accomplished the kind of perfect final word, doesn't stop with it. Because he cannot leave Timothy with the impression that you, at the end of your life, you will have reached this place in which... You can say what needs to be said, and that's enough, and you're perfectly at peace. Paul is at peace and is also disturbed in his loneliness. This is so important for us to see. This man in this middle image, St. Paul, who's kept the faith, who's fought the fight, who's run the race, is faithful and knows God to be faithful, and in that knowing he remains lonely, and he's not ashamed of it. He's not ashamed to say it. Timothy, come to me quickly. I need you. I need you. Demas has forsaken me. And I I have other colleagues, and they're going on mission. Tychicus, I actually sent away. I have a suspicious feeling that there's a story there about why Tychicus was sent away. Only Luke is with me. What an incredibly poignant line. Only Luke is with me. I like to think the reason Luke is with him is that Luke is a physician. And as a physician, he's attuned to the disease in Paul. And when all of these other people are rushing, Titus and Tychicus and others are rushing out to work, Luke knows there's work to be done. But right now, Paul needs me here. Right now, Paul needs me to stay and be present. And some of you need to hear this. Some of the work you need to be doing right now is to just be present to those who need you. Stuff is going to go undone. So let it go undone. These people need you. right? Discern that. Discern if that's what the Lord is saying to you. But when Paul says it, what we should hear is the anguish in it. After all of these years I've spent, laboring for the people of God. Only Luke is with me. Everybody else has either deserted me, refused to stand up for me, or they're gone on their own missions. Only Luke is with me. So hear this. For St. Paul, at the end of his faithful life, at the end of his holy life, that pleased the Lord, he is lonely for good reason. Only Luke is with me. Get to me quickly, Timothy, and bring Mark with you. This is another poignant line. Because Mark, there's a story to Mark's place in Paul's life. Years before, Paul and Barnabas on mission, Barnabas had brought John Mark into their work, shared work. And John Mark, this is according to the story in Acts, John Mark fails in his mission. He, he breaks with the responsibility that Paul had given him. What he had been entrusted to do, he doesn't finish. And Paul is deeply angered by it. And it causes a rift between Paul and Barnabas. Now, it's some people are easy to fight with. Don't look around right now. Some people are easy to fight with. But then there are other people, it's hard to imagine, how do you have the kind of, how do you split with Barnabas I mean, this seems like someone you simply could not offend deeply enough to drive away. But whatever happened between Paul and Barnabas, the friction was so intense that even Barnabas said, Enough with you. Enough with you. And this rift in Paul's life is not just between him and Barnabas, whom I assume is now dead, but also between him and John Mark. And at some point, that begins to be restored. And here, Paul is saying, I'm not going to die until I see him again. Until I see that young man that triggered all that anger in me all those years ago and led to the dispute with me and Barnabas. I'm not going to die until that story is finished. Bring him with you when you come. So notice the way in which Paul is dying. He's not hiding behind his professions He's not performing. He's not trying to be the apostle. He's not letting people see a kind of visage of faithfulness. He's saying, I'm ready. I've fought the good fight. I'm already being poured out as an offering to God. I've done what was required of me. But he's also naming the fact that he is hurting and that he needs help. And that, that is holiness. Holiness is not seen in the fact that Paul can find those perfect words. Holiness is not even seen in the fact that Paul has lived to the end and done well. Before he met Jesus, Paul could write like that and live well. What he finds in Jesus is a way to be human, not a way to be powerful, not a way to be influential. Not in a way to move people. Not in a way that would impress others. All of that he can do apart from Jesus. But what he can't do apart from Jesus is own the fact that he's alone and needs his friends. That's what he learns from Jesus. Is that what we've told people? That to be more like Christ is to be more at home in your own humanity? That's a, the closer you get to Jesus, the more at ease you are with yourself. The more comfortable you are with the fact that you're broken and confused and afraid. That the more powerfully God is at work in your life, the less illusions you have about the needs that still remain. That's what we see in this middle image. We'll come back to it. Let's go to the, the next one, which is the story of David. David is a very old man at this point. 1 Kings chapter 2. David is an old man. He's an old man and he's cold. In fact, 1 Kings opens by saying that David was, was very old and was so cold that they could not keep him warm. No matter how many blankets they cover him with. And they actually bring in the most beautiful woman in the nation. The most beautiful virgin in the nation. To cuddle him. To try to keep him alive. That's how cold he is. And the text makes the observation that David doesn't do anything. He doesn't make any kind of inappropriate gestures toward her because he's nearly dead. Now, this is David. I mean, read the rest of his story. This is not the way he normally interacts with his female companions. Am I saying this discreetly enough? Okay, everybody, are you following me? So in this other image, this image... Say, picture it to my right, to your left. David is an old man in a bed with blankets piled up on him and the most beautiful virgin in the kingdom clutching him to try to keep him alive long enough to end this revolt that's outside the door. Because just on the other side of this door that you can't see outside the painting, another one of David's sons has launched another rebellion, another coup to try to take the throne from him. And David is about to call in, is calling in, Bathsheba and the son, the woman that he stole, killed her husband to cover it up. And with whom he had his child, Solomon, he's going to bring them in. And with his last words, he's going to confer his kingdom on them. Rather than that son, Adonijah, who's out there launching the revolt, with whom almost everyone else in the nation has sided. Now, we we have this illusion about David, the man after God's own heart, as a worshiper who delighted God. And that's true, but it's not the whole truth. He did delight God. But his story is deeply tragic. Deeply tragic. And the whole back half of his life is a story of one family tragedy after another after another. And in this last scene, when we see him here, Again, barely alive, covered in blankets in this bed, clutched by this woman, breathing these last words. Again, what's happening outside is the whole nation is turning from him. God stands by him, but everybody else, including his closest confidants, Joab, among them, have turned to this new rebellion. And this is what David says, 2 Kings chapter 2. When the time drew near for David to die, he gave a charge for Solomon, his son. I'm about to go the way of all the earth. You can tell he's a poet. Like Paul, he knows how to use his words. I'm about to go the way of all the earth. So be strong. Act like a man and observe what the Lord your God requires. Walk in obedience to him and keep his decrees and commandments, his laws and regulations as written in the law of Moses. Do this so that you may prosper in all you do and wherever you go and that the Lord may keep his promise to me. If your descendants watch how they live and if they walk faithfully before me with all their heart and soul, you will never fail to have a successor on the throne of Israel. And if he had stopped there it would have seemed like a fitting death. Even though there's tragedy unfolding, that, if we had stopped right at that moment, that would have seemed like, if not quite redeeming, at least an appropriate end. But he keeps talking too. And what comes up out of him, unlike what comes up out of Paul when he keeps talking, is not humanity, but inhumanity. Listen to what comes out of David when he keeps talking. Past the poetry, right? He's composed these final words. He's the poet who was ready to say to his son, the heir, this is what you must do. I am going to go the way of all the earth. Be faithful, and God will be faithful. But he can't keep his heart from speaking. Listen to what comes out of him. Now you yourself know what Joab, son of Zariah, did to me. What he did to the two commanders of Israel's armies, Abner and Athashai, son of Jethes. He killed them, shedding their blood in peacetime as if in battle. And with that blood, he stained the belt around his waist and the sandals on his feet. Deal with him according to your wisdom, but do not let his gray head go down to the grave in peace. Now remember, this is a boy. This is a boy seeing his father for the last time. These are his father's last words to him. And he should have stopped talking. But he couldn't keep his heart from speaking. And what comes up out of him is resentment for the betrayal. Now notice, David is dying and he feels the same loneliness and the same betrayal that Paul felt. Demas has forsaken me. Alexander, the metal worker, has done great harm to me. No one stood with me in my trial. So in both of these images, you have men who know what it is to be left alone, to be abandoned, to be betrayed. But what comes up out of Paul and what comes up out of David are entirely different words. Entirely different words. He says to this boy, do what is in your wisdom so long as what's in your wisdom is he dies, and he dies a bloody death. And again, he doesn't stop. Show kindness to the sons of Bezariah of Gilead and let them be among those who eat at your table. They stood by me when I fled from your brother Absalom. And remember, you have with you Shimei, son of Girah the Benjamite, who called down bitter curses on me the day I went to Manaheim. When he came down to meet me at the Jordan, I swore to him by the Lord, I will not put you to death by the sword. But no, but now, do you not consider him innocent? You are a man of wisdom. You will know what to do to him. Bring his gray head down to the grave in blood. Then David rested. And what's just happened? David, in these last seconds of his life, in these last moments, he's remembering the betrayals. And those who didn't betray him. These stood with me, these did not. And he's burdening his son. Notice, Paul is speaking to his son, David is speaking to his son. But what Paul is doing is instilling Timothy with confidence, making sure Timothy knows, I need you. Paul is forcing onto Solomon a heavy burden. What he's doing is he's putting the sword in Solomon's hand. What is it that kept David from building the temple? His hands were bloody. In his last act, he's telling Solomon, with your first acts, you must get your hands bloody. Now, what are we to make of this? How do you live this life, a life lived after God? the life of the one whom God delighted in, the life of the psalmist. How do you live that life and die this death? How does the same mouth that says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, let its last words be to his son. Don't let him go down to the grave without blood. It's a reminder to us, it's a startling reminder that our praises are, And our delight in God do not guarantee our sanctification. We can stand with our hands raised. We can cry and sing. We can dance before the Lord. We can fall on our faces before the Lord. But that does not mean that our hearts will be like his. It does not mean that we will die as he dies. So we're going to look at a third image in just a moment. But I want you to stop for a moment and consider Both of these men are alone. Both of these men are in pain. Both of these men are dying in anguish, but they don't sound the same. They don't say the same words. They feel the same pain. They don't express their responses in the same way. So one more image, Deuteronomy 34. This is the death of Moses. Deuteronomy 34, again an old man, 120 years old, but this man is full of life. Paul is old and chained. David is old and already dead before he's dead. But Moses is as vigorous at 120 as he was at 40, which meant something different in the ancient world than it means now. I wasn't very vigorous at 40, (laughs) and that was seven years ago. Lord of mercy. Then Moses climbed Mount Nebo. See what I mean? From the plains of Moab to the top of Pisgah, across from Jericho. There the Lord showed him the whole land, from Gilead to Dan, all of Naphtali, the territory of Ephraim and Manasseh, all the land of Judah, as far as the Mediterranean Sea, the Negev and the whole region from the Valley of Jericho, the city of Palms, as far as Zoan. Then the Lord said to him, This is the land I promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, when I said, I will give it to your descendants. I have let you see it with your eye, but you will not cross over into it. And Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in Moab, as the Lord had said. He buried him in Moab, in the valley opposite Beth Beor. But to this day, no one knows where his grave is. Moses was 120 years old when he he died. Yet his eyes were not weak, nor his strength gone. The Israelites grieved for Moses In the plains of Moab, 30 days, until the time of weeping and mourning was over. Now Joshua, son of Nun, another father and son, was filled with the spirit of wisdom because Moses had laid his hands on him. So the Israelites listened to him and did what the Lord had commanded Moses. Again, an old man. But this time, there are no words. And this is stunning because Moses is the lawgiver. He's the one who speaks with the very words of God. The end of Deuteronomy 34 tells us, never again have we seen a human being like this with whom God has spoken face to face, who spoke the very words of God. But in this moment, he says nothing. And he is absolutely alone. Joshua's not with him. His sister Miriam has died. No one mourned for her. His brother Aaron has died. No one mourned for him. He is alone. Utterly alone and wordless. It's just Moses and the Lord. And he sees a promised land he cannot enter. You know the story. Right at the beginning of the Exodus... Moses, the deliverer, has brought Israel into the wilderness, and they're thirsty. And they complain because they're thirsty. Have you brought us all this way for us to die of thirst? And he turns to the Lord. The Lord gives him a command. Moses strikes the rock, and water flows. And almost exactly 40 years later, the same scene happens again. The people complain. Have you brought us all this way to die? Except these aren't the same people. When this happens the second time, This is the new generation. These are the children of the people who died in the wilderness. And you know what happens. Moses is angry. Moses is angry for all kinds of reasons. But I can think of two that would make me angry for sure. The first is they are saying this in the moments after the death of his sister. She has died and instead of grieving for her, they're complaining to him about the fact that they have no water. And, and, much more to the point perhaps, these are the children who were supposed to be the faithful ones. That other generation, the ones who came out of Egypt as adults, of course they were the unfaithful ones. Moses had made peace with that. These people are just going to have to die off before we get where we're going. Again, don't look around. (laughs) don't look around unless Pastor Jay directs you to do the slow 360. Do not look around.
4: God have mercy.
5: I've, I've I've got to get to this. But this is different. These are the children of that early generation, and they're making the exact same mistake in the exact same place. And Moses is angry. He strikes the rock twice, and the judgment of God falls on him you will not enter the promised land because you have not preserved my holiness in the presence of these people. It seems like a hard judgment. And Moses argues with God. There's one medieval text that suggests that Moses argued with God exactly 515 times. Who knows? Might have been more than that. But when the time comes for him to die, he is not arguing. In the scene I've asked you to envision, when he climbs up that mountain without a word, he's not fighting with God. He's just listening. And then at the end, the text, all the text says is that he died at the word of the Lord. But the rabbis say this is the word that breathes. And that God kisses Moses and takes from him the breath of life in exactly the same way that he had kissed Adam and breathed into him the breath of life. And then God buries him there wherever that is. Here's what I want you to see in this last image and I'm almost done. This is Moses' greatest act of faith. All those years before When he had confronted Pharaoh, let my people go, he had an enormous presence. He was reluctant, much like Timothy, he was reluctant to take that role. You know, when God meets him in the wilderness, on the backside of the desert, in the burning bush, Moses does not want to do it, does not think he can do it, argues with God repeatedly about doing it, annoys God with his reluctance. Who made the mouth? Moses. But since you won't shut up, here's Aaron. He will be your mouth. Moses comes only reluctantly, but when he comes, he comes saying to Pharaoh, let my people go. And notice, he doesn't say, treat my people better. He doesn't say, Pharaoh, maybe we could just give them wages and let them keep doing the work. It's let my people go, not treat my people better. He's their deliverer, and he's never honored for it. He knows loneliness not just at the end of his life, but every step of those last 40 years. Every step Moses takes, he knows these people that I'm delivering don't see me. They don't know me. He is close with God, but not with anyone else. And so, when he's told, you're not going to be going into the promised land, I don't know that any of us can imagine the kind of pain that that brings in him. Because all he cares about, hear me, all he cares about is seeing his people brought to their place. That's what he's lived for. He's lived for it, even confronting God, arguing with God on their behalf. Even though they do not stand with him, he always stands for them. Even while they complain, he defends them. He intercedes for them when all he's getting from them is grumbling and rebellion. And still, he's got to come to terms with the fact that because he failed in this moment, they're going to go into the promised land and he is not. And here's the thing. He never throws his righteousness in God's face. He begs to go, but he never says, God, how dare you? These people wouldn't even exist if it weren't for me. You would have destroyed them in the wilderness 40 years ago if it weren't for me. They would have died in the wilderness on their own if it weren't for me. And now you're letting this ragtag band of no good, ungrateful rebels go into the land with all of their sins because I struck a rock twice. He never says this. And in the end, he doesn't say anything at all. Why? I already told you. Because all he cares about is for his people to get where they belong. He truly loves them more than he loves himself. And notice what happens When he goes to confront Pharaoh, let my people go. That's an act of audacious faith. But what he has to do in the end is the same thing Pharaoh had to do. He has to actually let the people go. And when Pharaoh let the people go, he immediately has remorse. The moment they start moving toward the wilderness, Pharaoh calls for the chariots and the horsemen. Get them back the moment they start to ease out toward the wilderness, Pharaoh grabs to reclaim them, chases them all the way to the sea, into the sea. And now Moses has to do that same letting go, but he doesn't grasp. He doesn't even argue. And the faith it takes at the end of his life to let those people go is infinitely greater than the faith it took to face Pharaoh and say, let my people go. Because nothing is holier than trusting other people to God, knowing you can't do anything about it. Nothing is holier than loving people enough to wish their good above your own recognition for the good you've done to them. Nothing is holier than that letting go. I'm almost done. I said that a few minutes ago, and I mean it more now than I did then. But less than you want me to mean it now or then. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who's in prison, in a Nazi prison, because of his participation in a plot, finds out one day, that the Gestapo have discovered proof that he was involved. It wasn't just suspicion or rumor. They know now that he was involved. And he recognizes, must have recognized, I'm not getting out of this prison alive. And that day or in the day after, he sat down and wrote a poem. And you know what he wrote? A poem of the last words of Moses. Moses. And he did it knowing that he was about to experience what Moses had experienced. is only 38 years old at the time. But he has lived the last years of his life for his people. In hopes of seeing the other side of Germany after Hitler has fallen. After the powers of Nazism have been broken. He is envisioning a future in which the German church return, repents and returns to its calling. And he wants to be there for that. Anything you, I mean, most of us know him because of the cost of the discipleship, but he wrote many, many, many things. And his work is always dedicated to that future church, the the restored church on the other side of Hitler. And now he knows I won't get there. I'm not going to make it to that place. And he knows he's going to die in this prison. But he doesn't sound like David. He sounds like Paul and Moses. And what does he do? He turns to the story of Moses. He writes this long poem. And in the last stanza, this is what he says. Oh, God, this people have I truly loved. This people that have have I truly loved. I bore its shame and sacrifices. And saw its salvation. That suffices. Hold me fast. So now it's Bonifer. Imagine himself as Moses in this last moment saying, I bore their shame. I bore their sacrifices and their pain. I saw their salvation. Not mine, their salvation. And that's enough. Hold me. And Moses dies. Another 38-year-old man, Martin Luther King, Jr., the day before he's killed, is standing in Memphis, a city named for the capital of Egypt, speaking on behalf of exploited workers. And what does he say in that final paragraph? I want to read it to you so you get it exactly as he said it. He's just in, in in the speech He's just gone through all of these various assassination attempts on his life. How he had barely survived the knife wound. How that even when they had flown here to Memphis, they had to have a special crew to watch the plane and to make sure that no one had planted explosive devices on it or it found a way to kill him by crashing the plane. And so he's recounted all of these attempts on his life. And these are his last public words. Well, I don't know what will happen now. We've got difficult days ahead, but it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter because I've been to the mountaintop and I don't mind. Like anybody, I would like to live a long life. Longevity has its place, but I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will. And he's allowed me to go up the mountain. And I've looked over and I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you, but I want you to know tonight that we as a people, we will get to the promised land. And I'm happy, I'm happy. I'm not worried about anything. I'm not fearing any man. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. And he walked off that stage, and by the next night, he was dead. What happened here? What happened to Bonhoeffer and Martin Luther King is that they became Moses. In that last moment of their life, Bonafort knew it. Martin did not, but in that last moment of their life, they came to share in that willingness to accept the future, and that happiness that comes when the good of others takes precedence over your own. And so I'll leave you with this. Do you see the image of Jesus here? On the one hand, you have a man dying, and his heart is bitter. And there is such pain in every word from his mouth. And on this hand, you have someone who has no words at all. And in the middle, you have a man in chains, desperately lonely, but conformed to the image of Jesus. We don't have time to do it, but if we look through those words in Paul, he's constantly making reference to Psalm 22, just as Jesus does on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Two times in that passage, Paul talks about being forsaken. And then at the end of Psalm 22, the psalmist boasts, but I have been rescued from the lion's mouth. And what does Paul say? I have been rescued from the lion's mouth because the Lord stood with me. Now, Paul knows he's going to die. Rescued from the lion's mouth does not mean I'm getting out of this alive. It means I get to die with him. Rescued from the lion's mouth does not mean people will honor me for who I really am. It means I get to share his shame. Rescued from the lion's mouth does not mean everybody who wronged me will own it. It means that God will make right what they did wrong because of him. This is what I want to leave you with this morning. Thank you for your patience. That's possible for you. Maybe not today, but between now and the end of your life, God can make you like this. But you've got to see Jesus. And you've got to see Jesus in his saints. And you've got to realize that what matters is not what happens to you. It's what happens for your neighbor. What matters is not what happens to you, it's what happens for your neighbor. Because nothing reveals the face of God like the kind of love that seeks the good of the other above our own. And here's the secret that's where happiness hides. David is worried about his own good, and he's miserable. But Paul and Moses and Martin and Bonhoeffer, they know, I don't have to work to my own good. I don't have to look to my own good. Happiness is looking to your good. That's Jake.
2: We prepare our hearts to approach the table of the Lord. I want to give us a moment to respond to this word, beloved. Would you sit under the reflection of the Holy Spirit and ask Him what it is that He wants to land right now in your heart? There have been many words. Lord, what is the word of the Lord for each and every individual here in this room right now? What is the word of the Lord for me? What is gospel witness for me right now today, Lord? What are you inviting me into in this word? Now, very simply, what it is that you sense the Lord putting on your heart, I just want you to say, Lord, I receive that. I receive it. And I ask you for the grace to respond to your word today. My friend, very quickly, I wanna wanna lead you in a prayer of forgiveness. There are so many things that Dr. Chris shared this morning, but I cannot help but think about Paul and Demas Paul and Alexander, Paul and so many who deserted him. And I know that there are some of you in the room even today that this is not a figurative story. This is a reality in your life that you very much know the pain of rejection and abandonment. And this stark contrast, Paul lets go. He forgives and releases these people to the grace of God. Moses lets go and David clutches. His dying words is the name of Shimei, which tells me that David is clutching. He never forgave. There's some of you in this room right now, there is a Shimei in your life that you're still clutching there's someone who has abandoned you. There's a demis in your life that you're clutching, you're holding on to in desperation and anger and violation and offense. Friend, the grace of God today, I'm gonna to pray that the sweet, gentle power of the Holy Spirit would loosen the vice grip of your heart and allow you to let go. Father, today we forgive those who have offended us. Father, today we forgive those who have violated us. Father, today we forgive those who have deserted and abandoned Father, today we forgive those who have done us harm. Father, today we forgive those who have betrayed us. Father, today we forgive those who did not stand with us. They did not continue the journey with us. By faith, we forgive them and we release them. To the grace of God, in Jesus' name. Beloved, would you stand with me as we approach the table of the Lord? Ministers of the table, I'd like to invite you to come forward. Bishop Chris, thank you for your faithfulness. Brothers and sisters, would you stretch forth your hand to the table today? Holy Spirit, would you come hover over bread and juice as you hovered over the chaos of Genesis 1 and would you create something? Would you make this what we could never make it? Would you make it unto us, the body and the blood of Jesus? Would you be at work in normal, common, ordinary elements? And Father, by the mystery of faith and the mystery of grace today, would you mediate unto us a fresh revelation and a fresh encounter of the crucified and the resurrected Christ? We pray these things today by faith in the name of Jesus. I want to invite you to come to receive. You're not taking the table, you're receiving. Come with open hands. Come in a spirit of grace and humility. Let the Lord himself place into your hands his life and we will all take it together. You can exit on the left, receive from each of these and we'll take this meal together in our seats.
1: Oh, the perfect son of God in all his innocence you walking in the dirt with you and me he knows what Acquainted with our grief, a man of sorrow, son of suffering. Oh, blood and tears, how can it be? There's a God who weeps, there's a God who believes. imagine you are distant and removed but you chased us down in merciful pursuit to the sinner you were grace Had the broken you embraced and in the end the proof was in your wounds yes, in the end is in your wounds of blood and tears. How can it be? There's a God who weeps. There's a God who bleeds. Oh, praise of God mm-hmm. you.
5: I'm going to do what both Paul and Moses, I mean Paul and David did and keep talking. I hope I sound more like Paul than David. Why did Jesus give us this meal? I mean there's there's no end to the answers of why, but the heart of it is this. We have to learn to attend to his suffering you've got to be able to see that our God is a God who weeps and bleeds and to see that he weeps in every tear and he bleeds in every drop of blood. That wherever there is pain, that is God's pain. From Gaza to Colorado Springs from Rome to Timbuktu Wherever there are tears, those are God's tears, and wherever there is pain, that is the blood of Jesus. That's what this meal is doing. In the aftermath of the event, I mean in the in the hours after I'd seen what was happening with George Floyd, what happened to him, how he was killed. I was praying, and this is what I heard. And I feel so deeply as we're about to receive this meal that you need to hear it too. Until our grief for the wrongs that others have suffered is deeper than our fear of what might happen to us, we will never be free. Until our grief for what has happened to others is deeper than our fear of what might happen to us we will not be free what stands between us being the living spirit empowered prophetic people of God and being hypocrites is that grief and it's this meal it's this broken body and this shed blood that gives us good grief That teaches us that if we want to see the face of God, we have to look to the places that are broken and the wounds that are open.
2: With that being said, brothers, would you and sisters, would you hold this with an open hand? Lord, we receive what you put in our hand. We receive from you what we cannot give to ourselves. We receive this revelation of lament and grief. Lord, we cannot work this up. We ask you for the grace to enter into the fellowship of your sufferings. The night when Christ was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. Would you break this in your hands? Jesus, we realize that not only was your very physical body broken, but we, your spiritual body, have been broken to be distributed, to be the life to the world. Brothers and sisters, this is the body of Christ. You may take and eat. And in like manner, he took the cup and he declared to them that this is the cup of the new covenant that has been purchased and sealed by my very blood. And today I pronounce to you that your sins have been forgiven by the life and the death and the resurrection, the ascension of Jesus. Receive the forgiveness of the Lord today. You may receive the cup. This is a good work, the work of the Lord, the work of the spirit, which is ongoing. It is a good work. And we testify to the good work that is happening in your lives. Brothers and sisters, there is a good work that is happening in you. Some of you are walking right now, literally through the valley of the shadow of the darkest season of your life. And I wanna pronounce, I wanna announce to you, there is a good work that is happening. It is not an easy work. It is not a comfortable work, but it is a faithful and it is a good work. And the Lord has not abandoned you. He is with you. And with that, let us sing a song of thanksgiving.
1: Praise God from whom blessings flow. Praise
0: Him.
2: Bishop Chris was giving us that quick exhortation. I just felt this quick quickening in my spirit. And this is for somebody or for some handful of people. There are some of you who have received prayer a time or two. There's some of you who are thinking to yourselves, I I don't need to keep going, but I just felt this kind of prodding. You need to keep coming. You need to keep coming and receiving prayer. Don't disconnect yourself, right? Right. This is the body being able to link arms with you and weep over you and weep with you and encourage you and stand together with you. And so I just want to humbly invite you to come and borrow our faith and receive prayer from those who are ministering today at the altar. Would you hold your hands open as I bless you today as we're sent into the world. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, we send to you today. In the same way that Christ Jesus was sent to the world, we send you in the authority of Christ's name to be the faithful presence of Jesus to all those that you interact with, to bring comfort and to bring peace as the overflow of the good work of God in your life. We send you into wholeness in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. We love you. God bless you guys. We'll see you next week.